This podcast contains sensitive information which may upset some listeners. Please be advised, we will be talking about the serial killing of infants, suicide attempts, and abortion. This information may not be suitable for all ages. We have changed the names of some people involved who were minors at the time and are still living in the area today. By interviewing the former coroner and the investigator involved in this case, we've tried to recreate it as accurately as possible. Please remember to like and subscribe to The Coroner's Report on any podcast platform and check out our show notes, case files, timelines, and newspaper articles at coronersreport.net. The podcast opens with two voice actors. So these are not the people directly affected by the crime, but it features their words taken directly from police statements. Now let's step back in time. It's June 23rd. 1982 in Little Rock, Arkansas. That day was like any other day. I worked for the city of North Little Rock in their traffic department. I got off work in the early afternoon like normal and headed to the babysitter's house to pick up my three girls. It was my routine. I loved my girls. I brought the girls home and cleaned up Tamika. That girl had been playing hard in the dirt. Gave them all a snack. Tamika had her cookie crisp. Amanda and Cindy had a bowl of fruity pebbles. That night, I decided I needed needed a little break and I wanted to go to the movies. I remember seeing little Tamika waving goodbye from the front porch. I never thought in a million years that would be the last time I would see her. Tamika went out on the front porch and started crying because she wanted to go with him. He went on and left and she kept crying. When I had Tamika come in the house, Georgia told me before he left to be sure and wash her hair. I took her into the bathroom. Then I lifted her up on my knee and held her head under the faucet where I could wash it. Then she told me I'd gotten soap in her eyes. So I got a towel and got the soap out of her eyes. When I got through washing her hair, I took her in the living room. I greased her hair down and plaited it. While I was doing that, she fell asleep and I told her to go to bed. I spanked her. She kept on crying. She told me that she was going to tell her daddy that I spanked her. She was still crying, so I got a pillow off one of the other girls' beds and put that pillow over Tamika's face. I started pushing the pillow down and Tamika started grabbing at the pillow with her other hands. Her legs were kicking and I could hear her saying she was going to tell her daddy. I kept the pillow pressed down on her face for about two minutes before, finally, her legs went limp and she quit crying. I lifted the pillow up and saw that her eyes were about half closed, so I figured she was asleep and called the other girls into the house. When I got supper ready, I had Cindy to go in to get Tamika up. Cindy called out for me and said that she couldn't get Tamika to wake up. I went in and Cindy had Tamika off the bed and was trying to get her to stand up. Tamika was all limp and I could see right then that she was dead. Hello and welcome to the Coroner's Report. I'm Steve Navoychek. I was the coroner in two of Arkansas's largest counties and also served as the director of the state crime lab. Before we get started, please remember to like and subscribe and comment wherever you are listening. And please visit our website at www.coroners.report. There you'll find additional information on each of the cases that we discuss. 
And as always, thanks for listening to me and my partner, Tracy. Today, we will be speaking with Gray LeMaster, who was the original investigator on the case we will be discussing. He retired from the Little Rock Police Department and started his second career as a therapist. But like me, he never really got Deborah Tuggle off his mind. So this is one of the rarest cases in the nation. A black woman who is a serial killer of her own children. Her name was Deborah Tuggle. This story starts in Little Rock, Arkansas in the early 1970s, where a young mother is about to give birth to her very first child. Her name is Deborah Johnson at the time, and she's only 15 years old. The bouncing baby boy arrived in this world on August 5, 1972. The birth was uneventful, and soon the young mother returned with her baby to her mother's house. There were plenty of hands to hold the baby and help. Deborah has three sisters and a brother. The baby, William Earl Henry Jr., appears to be healthy. There is nothing to show the horror that will come to the family later. For now, everyone is adjusting to the new baby in the house. Sadly, six months later, Deborah's younger sister, Rhonda Jean, was tragically killed when she chased a friend into the street, slipped on some gravel, and was hit by a car. Her catastrophic injuries would lead to her death just a few hours later. No charges were filed against the driver of the car because it was simply a horrible accident. Sadly, the next death wouldn't be so accidental. Less than a year after her sister's death, Deborah becomes a mother again when Thomas Lee Bates Jr. was born. Thomas would be the first child Deborah would kill, but he wouldn't be the last. Investigator Gray LeMaster started methodically investigating this case, but it would be over a decade later before the investigation would even start. In the investigation, what took me four months was I tried to go back and recreate or reconstruct the, the scene at the time of death and each one of those specific incidents of death, you know, where who was there where did it happen who was there when it happened you know who was she living with at the time who was in her life who the father was what was happening at the particular day of the death who found the baby which and she did in each case and then kind of what unfolded from there who was notified who pronounced where was the baby taken so recreating all of that was you know fairly tedious because so much of it it wasn't just a clean paper trail you had to, to really dig through and some of it i didn't get all the information but most of it i was able to to piece together each particular incident and then what unfolded was this pattern deborah would confess to all of her crimes many years later her confessions were illuminating. I was 16 years old when Thomas Jr. was born. His father had left for the service a month before. After Thomas Jr. was born, I wrote to Thomas Bates, the father, telling him about the birth. He wrote me back and said, when he got out of the service, he didn't ever want to see me again, but he wanted to see the baby. As time went by, the baby was real irritable. He cried a lot. One afternoon in March 1974, I was at the house watching TV, and I had the baby in my lap and had a blanket wrapped around him. I took the blanket from around him and put it across his face. He offered no resistance. I pressed that blanket down real tight against his face, and he went right out. When he was limp, I lifted the blanket off and saw that he wasn't breathing. I took him then and put him in the baby bed. I knew at that time he was dead. I came back and called the police. The police came out. I didn't hear no more after that. 
During that era of death investigation in Arkansas, it was really death investigators when it came to the SIDS cases. We were in a trick bag because in order to get an autopsy done by the SIDS project, which worked at the Arkansas Department of Health, you had to get the permission of both the parents of the child. Now, what parent who just smothered their child is going to give permission for an autopsy that might essentially cook their coconuts, you know what I mean? So it, it was always a huge problem and a gambit when you went about that. Now, what made it even worse was because during that time in Arkansas, the crime lab, which is where the medical examiner was housed, were only taking cases that you could tell them with a reasonable degree of certainty were homicides. They were not doing the autopsies that they were required to do by state law, which also kept me in a bunch of trouble. Now, remember, I had been at the crime lab, so I kind of knew what the directions of that crime lab were supposed to be. But the legislature has never funded it properly. Nobody ever thinks about the crime laboratory until it's too late, you know, when somebody who is somebody, when their somebody gets caught up in the system, then of course they think about it. But the conundrum was, unless you could prove it to be a homicide, crime lab wouldn't take it to do an autopsy on them. And if it was a SIDS case, you had to have permission from the parents. So it was just horrible. And it allowed deaths to slip through that I always told people that there were deaths slipping through, but you know, hindsight's twenty twenty. The first death was in March of 74, and that was a two-month-old of hers. And that baby was, there was no autopsy. She took the baby to UAMS. The body was released to a funeral home that a doctor in the ER pronounced. Hard questions were not asked. But in 1974, no one in Little Rock suspected a thing. Deborah waited two months before she killed again. This time, her victim would be her firstborn son, William Earl Henry Jr. He was just 21 months old. He never saw his second birthday. Investigator Gray LeMaster learned from Deborah why she killed William. What she said was she saw how easy it was. No one questioned. No one, there was no no marks on the body. It was just so easy kill a, a baby and that just stuck in her mind when two months later the father of William Henry the 21 month old had gone out and was out partying and left her at the house to take care of William and it just ticked her off and she decided that what I'll do is you know I'll show you I'll kill your baby and I'm going to take something really precious from you because you have disrespected me by basically leaving me here with the baby and you're out having fun. I was 14 years old when William was born. I lived at home with my mother. William was a very good baby and I never had any problems with him. In January of 74, I had another baby. I killed that baby in March of 74. Even when that happened, I didn't even think about doing harm to William. That was altogether different. Well, it was Easter Sunday. I believe it was the first Sunday in May of 74. The baby's father had told me he was going to come and pick the baby up. It got later on in the afternoon. And when William Henry, the baby's father, didn't show up, I went in and called him. He told me he wasn't going to pick him up because he didn't have time to fool with him. That got me real upset. Everybody had left the house. I took William inside, and he laid down with me in the bed and fell off to sleep. After he was asleep, I first went back and called his father. 
He told me the same thing and told me not to call him anymore. Then I went back to bed, and I got a pillow and placed it over William's face. I pressed it down real tight, and William started kicking and pulling at the pillow. When he went limp, I went out and found a neighbor across the street. She came over, and I told her to check on William that he was sick. She went in and told me to call the ambulance. She came in the living room and told me William was dead. When the ambulance arrived, they went in, closed the door, and worked with him for a while. The police came, and after a while, they called for the coroner. They was asking me about what happened, and I told them I had just found him dead in the bed. Today, postpartum depression might be blamed in part for a single case of matricide, but back then, not much was known. Well, I don't know we knew enough back then. She had a history of mood disorders, and that wasn't just after she gave birth to a child. Other things would bring that on, but that's a possibility. You know, I think you go back, that becomes the pattern of her getting mad at the father and killing the child. She was dangerous and, you know, very reckless in the sense that for her, there was this pattern and put her in those circumstances. It's horrible to think of where her mind would go. Seven months later, Deborah had moved in with a new man, Thomas Givens. And by the start of 1975, Deborah was pregnant again. In November of 1975, Deborah gave birth to Ronald Earl Johnson. Ronald was a very good baby, and I never had no problem with him. For six months, Ronald stayed down at Scott with Mary Givens, who was by my boyfriend, Thomas Givens' mother. But Thomas Givens wasn't Ronald's daddy. His daddy was Robert Earl Brown. I had told Thomas about what I had done to my other two babies, and Thomas told me he was going to use that against me to get custody of Ronald. This was all before I went and got the baby from Mary Givens' house in Scott. When Thomas told me that, I went and got the baby and brought him back to my house. Thomas kept calling me and saying he was going to tell what he knew. After that, it was late one evening around the middle of August. I was living back at my mother's house. I had got Ronald to sleep in my bed. I went in the bathroom and shot some coke. I came out, sat up for a while, talking to my sister. Then I nodded off to sleep. When I woke up the next morning, I found that I had rolled over on Ronald. When I woke up, Ronald was under me and he was dead. I was doped up and I couldn't really tell. My brother told the police he had come in around three that morning and the baby was awake. And he talked to the baby. I told them I had just woke up and found the baby dead. I didn't say anything about having smothered him. And that pattern of deaths would not be lost on investigator Gray Lamaster. The same scenario, different father, but same thing. He left her there at the house and was, you know, Ronald was about nine months old and that was in 76, I believe. He saw how Easily, the medical community accepted she, and she told them that I rolled over, and baby was underneath me, and the baby wasn't breathing. You know, there was not even an autopsy. She merely said, "I don't know what happened. I I put the baby down. Baby fell asleep, and I woke up, and the baby wasn't breathing." She did not tell them that she had rolled over on the child. So obviously, she was in a 
pretty bad place where that happened. As you can imagine, life was difficult for Deborah. In 1978, she attempted to kill herself by shooting herself in the stomach. Her family just said she was just very kind of sinking deeper and deeper into some dark moods. And then at some point, there was a kind of the catalyst for why she shot herself. But the indication was it was a self-inflicted wound. After a brief stint in the Arkansas State Hospital to stabilize her, she was released, and Deborah quickly found another man. In May, she married Tom Tuggle. She also had a few run-ins with the law, nothing major, just some petty theft. She told people that her babies had died of SIDS or of a blood disorder. Like clockwork, six months later, Deborah was pregnant with her fourth child. On August 4th, 1979, I had a son that we named Terrence Andre Tuggle. I was married to Tom Tuggle at the time. Terrence was not Tom's child. He was Freddie Thompson's baby. But since I had married Tom, I gave Terrence Tom's name. When me and the baby came home from the hospital, Terrence started being real irritable at night. He wouldn't sleep, and we thought that he was just spoiled. But then he started having trouble sleeping during the day, too. And I figured there was something wrong, but I wasn't sure. I still thought maybe he was just spoiled. When Terrence was about two weeks old, me and Tom split up, and I moved into Freddie Thompson's apartment in Jacksonville. I had been out to Jacksonville two days when I got up one morning and I fed Terrence, he immediately started spitting up right when I got through feeding him. I had laid him in bed and I turned him over on his stomach and started patting him on the back. When I turned him over, he was bleeding from his nose and mouth a whole lot. I ran downstairs and I got the apartment manager. I had her to come back up while I went to call an ambulance. She stayed with the baby. The ambulance took Terrence to Children's Hospital. He stayed at Children's for three days, and they called me and said he could go home. The next day, he was sleeping in the afternoon, and I went in to check on him, and he wasn't breathing. I shook him, and he started breathing again. The next day, he was sleeping in the afternoon, and I went to change his bed. When I picked him up, I saw blood on the sheet and then saw blood coming from his nose. I called an ambulance, and they took him to Children's. This time, he stayed there two weeks. They said they had run all kinds of other tests, but after two weeks, they called me and said I could come and get Terrence because they didn't find anything wrong, and they had done all they could do. During the time the baby was in the hospital, me and Tom had got back together. We went to pick the baby up on a Thursday. Tom had said when he got off work on Friday, he was going to go to his mother's in Malvern. He said he wanted someone else to check on the baby, so we went on to Malvern. On Saturday morning, everyone had gotten up and gone fishing, just leaving me and Terrence there at the house. I had fed Terrence, gave him a bath, and put his clothes on. He started acting real irritable again. He was fussing and crying. I had tried to pick him up and all, but I couldn't get him to stop crying. I was just frustrated because I couldn't get him to stop crying. That and the fact that nobody seemed to be able to figure out what was wrong with him. I just couldn't stand it anymore. So I went in and laid Terrence down on the bed, put my hand over his face where I had his nose and mouth covered. He started kicking and thrashing about, but I held him like that until he went limp. I called an ambulance and they took him to the hospital. Dr. Brashears came out and told me that Terrence's lungs had collapsed and that he was dead. I was afraid to tell anyone what I had done 
Since Terrence had been having all those problems, everyone just assumed that's why he died. Again, Little Rock Homicide investigator Gray LeMaster rebuilt this case years later when folks started realizing these babies didn't just stop breathing and die. She kills Terrence, and that happened in Malvern in October of 79. But the same scenario, father leaves her at the house while he goes out and with his friends, and she kills their son, smothers their son, and then the child was taken to the hospital there in Malvern, and she reported that the baby was unresponsive in the crib and you know, there was no autopsy. The ER doctor ruled that it was cause of death was sit. That was part of the circumstantial case that I was trying to build. And again, it was still not enough to convict her, but you could definitely point to this pattern, taking all the other deaths into consideration. And then here in 1979, although that one was not in our jurisdiction, I went ahead and, and did as much legwork as I could in hopes that more in trying to use that in information to support the cases that, that were in our jurisdiction. That was probably the one that had the most actual recorded events going on of her activity, I guess you'd say, in the, the lead up to that incident. Man, the Little Rock in the 80s was crazy. I mean, it was probably like a lot of other places, but there was a lot of stuff going on, a lot of night partying, a lot of nightclubs people would bounce from nightclub to private club back to another nightclub i mean it was just uh party 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 and of course that was the era of cocaine and it was wild for a little small town little rock was sure full of adventures in little rock and in arkansas actually in the 80s when it came to sid's cases it was bizarre because the the laws weren't like they are now and and if we suspected sid's which SIDS is basically a wastebasket term. It means that you've ruled everything else out. But the outward signs of SIDS are, well, there's no outward signs. I mean, it just looks like the baby died in the crib. And I think what happened in this case is old mom, she figured it out on that first one, saw how easy it was, and then just breezed on through the rest of them. Not far from where Deborah was living with her mother, George Paxton lived with his three little girls. He was about 10 years older than Deborah and had a good job. He was simply a good man. He had to be, because in the early 80s, it was really odd for a man to be awarded custody of three little girls. George's life was about to change in ways he could never imagine. In August of 1981, he went out on a blind date, and six months later, she moved into his home and started caring for his little girls. She was quiet and real likable, real gentle sort. She seemed to love my children. I knew about the death of her four other babies, and I was worried about her mental health because she'd had a breakdown after she lost the kid. I knew she had shot herself in the stomach in 1978, and I went to the state hospital and talked to her psychiatrist. The doctor told me she was well enough to be released from the doctor's care, so I felt she was safe. It wasn't after all Melissa's birth that I start noticing things. George simply took a break from fatherhood and went to a movie. Not only did he not have a clue she was a killer, he even believed her after Tamika's death. But Tamika's death 
would be the catalyst that started a police investigation. The one we knew the most about was she was the girlfriend of George Paxton and his daughter, who was not quite three. And we actually had an investigation. It was ruled inconclusive initially. And then we had Dr. Malik further. We almost exhumed her body. I, I kind of started with that case and then worked backwards. By that point, she, she had a pattern of, I know what to do. You know, what she didn't factor in is that she was beyond the age limit of back then. The criteria for SIDS was at about a year that obviously almost three, she was beyond that. But she did the same. She put Tamika to bed and she put a pillow over her face and smothered her. And they, they did not call it that one SIDS because she was just too old. That's what made it this big mystery because the autopsy report read that he died from natural causes that, and it said acute aspiration pneumonia. You look that up and it's a pretty broad term. Of course, Deborah wasn't through having babies yet. In December of 1982, while living with George Paxton in the house where she killed Tamika, Deborah conceived another baby. In January of 1983, I found out I was pregnant. The father was George Paxton. George didn't believe right off that I was. I don't think he wanted to believe it. George had told me that he didn't ever want another child because he had lost Tamika in June of the year before. George kept telling me that he was afraid because of Tamika's death and the fact that I've had four children die when they was just babies. One night, I was seven months along. It was in July. George and me was talking one night, and George told me that he just didn't want the baby. The next day, after he had gone to work, it was about 1.30 in the afternoon. I took a coat hanger and stringed it out and inserted it into my vagina and pushed up until it wouldn't go any further. I started japping the coat hanger. I was trying to kill the baby. Once I started bleeding, I removed the coat hanger. I started having real bad pains in my lower stomach. I called George at work, and he said he would be home as soon as he could. I called my doctor, Dr. Fields, and he told me to come to his office. Dr. Fields examined me, and I didn't tell him right off what I had done. I waited a couple of days and told him what I'd done. When Deborah became pregnant, her doctor, Dr. Patrick Fields, became very concerned due to Deborah's history with children. After her abortion attempt, Dr. Fields made several efforts to have Deborah committed to the state hospital so she could be examined. The judge denied the petition to have Deborah committed. George Paxton stood by his wife and wasn't happy that Dr. Fields thought Deborah needed help mentally. Like many of us, he wore blinders and didn't see the signs that others saw. His own brother doubted Deborah's story on what happened to Tamika. The girl's babysitter also voiced her concerns. Gray Lamaster looks back on the mental status of Deborah. I don't remember anybody calling her crazy. They did say there were family members and even a couple of the fathers who would say she's got mental problems. She's messed up, moody. She has these mood swings. Uh, can be very withdrawn and then can become agitated and then rage. When she gets angry, it's not just anger, it's rage. There was, there was that sort of history given, and they would use the word, she's got mental problems. She was seen at the state hospital, and that was a, a voluntary thing that her family pushed, but 
you know, to, to say she was psychotic or she had some sort of uh, schizophrenic or something that really would classify her as not living in reality, there was no evidence of that. It wasn't difficult to talk to her. Deborah delivered a healthy, bouncing baby girl. We are choosing to protect her identity by calling her Melissa. After she was born, social services became involved. They investigated but saw no reason to remove any of the children. The baby and Paxton's surviving two older daughters appeared to be well taken care of. Dr. Merrill was the assistant director of maternal and child health. He led a program at the time to help families who had lost a baby to SIDS. Dr. Merrill noticed on the death certificate the mother's maiden name was always the same, Deborah Johnson. Dr. Merrill started investigating, and he said it was like unraveling a rope and continually coming to another knot made up of a lot of information that just didn't make any sense. He knew something was very wrong. But due to the game of politics that's always alive and well in the state of Arkansas, the harder Dr. Merrill pushed the more pushback he received from the state. But in the Paxton home, things were starting to unwrap. George started noticing the strain on Deborah. His older daughters were afraid of her. Deborah began having frequent nightmares and mood swings. He had no clue that she may have been responsible. You know, he didn't connect dots that, hey, she's had all these babies. Her babies died. Now my baby dies. Hmm. That did not cross his mind. George was, I and mean, he was a little clueless, and he beat himself up over that. No one needed to tell him that wasn't a good idea. He agonized. I mean, that poor man, he loved Tamika and just was distraught over her death. We looked at every possible angle. When we'd circle back and said, hey, let me tell you, Deborah's history, it just floored him. He had no idea. It really hit him hard that he truly beat himself up that he had invited this woman into his life. In November, the police started their investigation after Dr. Merrill brought the death certificate to the Pulaski County Coroner's office. The coroner at the time? Well, was none other than Steve Novoychek. Dr. Merrill showed up at the office after he had called to make an appointment. He, he didn't want to talk about it over the phone, so he came and he started talking to me about these cases of dead children, dead infants, actually, or babies. And Each, each one, you know, it, it was mesmerizing as he went through because he obviously had done a lot of work on it. And when he got to the part about Tamika's autopsy, when he said that Dr. Malik did not find any pneumonia in Tamika's tissues, but he did detect soap. I knew right then that we had to get him straight away, Dr. Merrill, that is, to the police department, because what he was telling me was an unbelievable case that he had unraveled. And that's when Dr. Merrill and I went to the police department, and thank goodness they handed the case off to Gray LeMaster. Dr. Merrill had, had uncovered where she was the mother in each. She had a different father. That was the link was she was the mother. By mid-November, George Paxton, he'd had enough. Deborah had agreed to give him custody of Melissa, and he was worried that she might change her mind and come back later for her daughter. On March 20th, 1984, Deborah was finally arrested. She was held on $750,000 bond and charged in connection of the deaths of three of her babies and Tamika Paxton. Police at the time expected a fifth charge to be added from Hot Spring County for the death of Terrence Tuggle. And over the course of 10 years, 26-year-old Deborah had killed five babies, all in a similar fashion. Based on the evidence as it presented itself, because every one of those five deaths where she admitted she killed the child were 
the circumstances or the cause or the her motive for for murdering that child are almost identical. Oddly, Deborah called Verlene Freeman from jail following her arrest. Verlene was the babysitter of the Paxton girls. Deborah told Verlene she had just been charged with murder and she admitted she had killed Tamika because she was mad at Paxton for leaving her alone with the kids. Deborah pled innocent by reason of insanity and was admitted to the state hospital for observation. They didn't think she was quite crazy enough to stay there. No, Deborah knew suffocating her babies was wrong. That's why she never confessed and kept on killing. A month later, the state hospital declared Deborah Sue Tuggle was legally responsible for her conduct and could stand trial. It didn't take long for Deborah to realize that her gig was up and she confessed to investigator Gray LeMaster the deaths of all five babies. She initially denied it, and the thing that we impressed upon her was there's something very dark about what you've done. The people who study crib death or sudden infant death syndrome are saying this is impossible, that there's never been a case like this. And and we're going to go with the experts who say that this could not happen, the Odds are not at all pointing toward this being possible. So the only other answer is foul play. And just appeal to Deborah, this is your opportunity to make peace with your conscience and and tell the truth. And it wasn't coerced. It wasn't manipulated. I mean, that that's really the the appeal. And I could tell when that was when that was presented to her, there was something that that you could just see the look that there was something in her that was able to experience guilt. And then that was why she eventually decided to to give a confession. And then she gave very detailed things that only she would know. And they all lined up with the, the circumstances that I had put together and collected over the months of investigating this. There's no way that she would know those things unless it happened just exactly as she gave it to us. To me, that was confirmation that she knew she did exactly what she was telling us. She didn't break down, but there were tears, and and I, I sensed a relief, I mean, genuine relief. I don't think it was something she just feigned or tried to make us think she was acting that way. I think she genuinely felt like she had sort of urged herself of the sins of these murders she's very clever actually i mean she's very manipulative but also very clever and stupid was not at all a word i'd used to describe her she was not so mentally ill or so disturbed that she could not discern right from wrong or know the difference and um, she most definitely could oh but you don't know the justice system see tuggle's court-appointed attorney asked the judge to throw out the confessions Tuggle claimed she hadn't been advised of her constitutional rights before giving the statements. In the case file, it's very clear she was given her rights over and over again before each confession. Then, the prosecuting attorney offered a plea deal. They would drop three cases if she would plead guilty to one charge of first-degree murder and she would serve life in prison. But Pulaski County Judge Floyd Lofton wasn't happy about the idea of dropping three murder counts. He said he would be willing to consider a plea to three counts as she would receive three concurrent life sentences. The public defender and the prosecuting attorney couldn't agree, so the case 
case headed to trial. And then Judge Lofton ruled to limit the state's questions and testimony to one case at a time, effectively tying the prosecutor's hands. If he tried to make his case, the most recent and strongest case, he couldn't bring the other deaths into testimony. And that's some bullshit. Investigator Gray LeMaster was just shocked. I remember being flabbergasted that that's what happened because we thought this, she's going to be where she cannot hurt children anymore. And that's exactly where she needs to be. But it, it got kicked to a jury trial. You know, she was charged with first degree murder. The jury found her guilty on Tamika because Again, it there was no explanation for death other than, you know, a reasonable explanation for death other than foul play, which she confessed to. And there was a juror that held out. It was 11 to 1 to convict. I don't remember the number of years, but she was going to get a lot of years, maybe 40, which would be the max other than life. And there was a juror that held out that felt sorry for her. This is what we heard later from jurors who shared this with the prosecutor's office, that person held out. There was just some issues there, and they finally compromised that they would agree to a 10-year sentence, which is the minimum uh, for murder. The jury stayed out a long time, and that's what they finally realized. It's that or a hung jury, and they agreed, and that's why she only got 10 years. It got worse. Judge Lofton also ruled that Tuttle's statements to police could only be used if relevant to the case being tried. Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Chris Piazza who went on to become the prosecutor as well as a circuit court judge in Pulaski County, told the paper that the exclusion of the confessions to the other deaths would strike at the heart of their case because it goes to the question of intent. In his closing arguments, Deputy Prosecuting Attorney Lloyd King called Tamika's death probably the most cold-blooded murder Ms. Tuggle could have done to a defenseless child. King went on to say, we cannot rehabilitate this woman. Investigator Gray LeMaster was stunned with the verdict. I waited for the jury to come back, and it was way on into the evening. You know, it was already dark by the time the jury came back with a verdict. I, I remember coming home, you know, my wife said, tell us, you know, what, and back before cell phones. So we didn't talk about it until I got home. So what happened? And I told her and uh, said, I kicked the wind out of me to have worked that hard and that long and then for it to kind of come down to a judge not taking the plea and then a juror holding out i had to eventually make peace with it it did what it needed to do and it stopped her i don't think she ever killed anyone else which still makes her a twisted soul could she have killed others maybe i mean again i think it would take something very specific circumstances where and again all of these were aimed at the father it had to be something that personal that they had done something to not just offend her, but, I mean, infuriate her and disrespect her. A few months later, 
Deborah was scheduled to go on trial for the murder of her nine-month-old son, Ronnie Earl Johnson. She had given two confessions for the 1974 murder. But Judge Lofton said the other confessions related to the murders of two more children were inadmissible. Her public defender, William Simpson, then argued that any delay would adversely affect her ability to gain parole and that she had been wrongfully denied a preliminary hearing to decide whether the Little Rock police had probable cause to even arrest her. In the end, all charges were dropped. Investigator Gray LeMaster, who ended up being a therapist in his second career after his law enforcement days, has special insight looking back on this case. There was such a, a fragile mentality in her that very easily offended and, and again, felt this need to get revenge. And, you know, what drove that, I, I don't know, but it certainly existed and in a, a very disturbing capacity to do very violent things. I mean, to smother, put a pillow over a baby's face and, you know, not to sensationalize just things that stick with you as an investigator. And it just gives you just this chill. But when she was smothering, Tamika, Tamika woke up. And, of course, Tamika is almost three, so she's verbal and, you know, very capable. So she has to really use force to hold her down until she's fighting her. And Tamika says, I'm going to tell my daddy if you don't stop. And she kills her. And you just think, oh, my gosh. For someone to be that without a conscience, without that ability in the moment to take control of yourself, and instead of I'm gonna I'm gonna make this man pay because he he wouldn't take me out with him. You know that's just there's such a disturbed mentality in there that something is truly fragile and allowing her to to commit these acts of violence without remorse and then not only commit them but to continue to commit. Her her moods are such that they can go to some very dark places and and commit some very heinous acts of violence that serve her purposes. I understand that there was a context that had to trigger that or to you know put it in motion. They had to be right. She's not just some ruthless killer that public beware. But and I think that may point to she's not dangerous when you think of a serial killer you think of somebody who's who's dangerous i think hers was very circumstantial and she found herself in these moments of her own desperation which obviously i'm not excusing at all what she did is evil she murdered her own children and daughter of her boyfriend and there's not much in terms of innocence that you're going to do that, you know, those are all very, very helpless victims. Tamika's father, George Paxton, was left with a lot of questions. I didn't want revenge, just justice. I'm frustrated because the state was stopped from presenting evidence that Deborah confessed to killing three of her own kids and implicated in the death of another. It seemed to me that the legal system, judicial system, has forgotten about victims and survivors. Well, there was a context to what she did. Again, it was disturbed and dark, and, and again, it just it was heartbreaking to to realize just how 
she took her anger out on these innocent little children and so disappointed in the system, I didn't feel like it gave her justice. Deborah Sue Johnson Tuggle served eight years of that 10-year sentence before being released into society again. My question to Gray was, could she do this again? You know, I mean, there was always that possibility. There was a, a bit in her. One of the things that I tried to establish in terms of a common thread or a common link between the deaths, and one of them obviously was motive. Why was she doing what she did? I thought I knew what it was, and then she confirmed it in her confession. And it was, they were vindictive. An act of, of getting back at the father, and even in the case of, of Tamika, the father left her at the house babysitting while he went to the movies, and it just ticked her off. Any guess on what she did as soon as she was released from prison? Don't you dare say she had another baby, Steve. No, no more babies, but she got married again and again. There was one little dust up at her mother's house. She'd come back over there and just kind of blew up on them. And it, it wasn't related to anything that had to do with these murders. She caused a huge, huge scene and the officers out there ended up arresting her. For the last 30 years, she hasn't even gotten a speeding ticket. These murders could have gone undetected because so much was unknown at the time about SIDS. Gray has more thoughts. There was no protocol on what do you do when. There was even, in some places, really no protocol for child abuse cases. Evidence of something either physical or sexual. The, a lot of hospitals just in the 70s just did not have a protocol. I never faulted or tried to point the finger at any of these hospitals or doctors that ruled says we can't find anything else we never know why killers choose to kill lots of questions are still out there like what did the family know most of those babies died in her mother's home within the family even though they knew she was you know she had these mood swings and could really become violent in terms of angry but that just was out of the question she would do something that heinous i never talked to them directly after we charged her i very deliberately kind of stayed away from deborah i i wanted to do all of my legwork she obviously knew she was under investigate under police investigation but i did not interview her before the day i picked her up with a warrant her family i had spoken to before she was charged in a more kind of I'm gathering information, I'm trying to make sense of a pattern, and can you help me? They believed what the, you know, the medical experts had ruled. She told me she did not confess to them, here's what I've done. She kept that to herself. Nobody knew that but, but Deborah. Her last baby, Melissa, the only survivor, grew up in her father, George Paxton's home, with her older sisters living in the shadow of the missing sister, Tamika. She's alive today, working in the healthcare industry and saving lives, all because a meddling doctor and a coroner got involved and they gave a damn. Well, this wraps up episode two of our podcast on the coroner's report. Thank you for listening. Remember, if you like what you're hearing, check us out online. Our website address is coronersreport.net, and you can find us on social media and on all streaming platforms. 
If you wander over to our website, that's where you'll find all of the original source information that we could scour up, including police reports, newspaper articles, and even a little genealogy at times. And don't forget to like and subscribe to our podcast wherever you find us online.